Good morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn over to Acts chapter 2. We are going to be studying uh, from verses 22 to uh, 41 this morning. Uh, and it's a little bit of a longer section, so I think it really will help you to have a Bible open. If you need one, we've got some uh, along the middle of the aisle. Someone can pass one down for you. Now, as we are uh, getting started this morning, and as you're flipping over, I'd invite you to consider a question with me. I'd invite you to consider the question, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Now, if you've been around me for any period of time, have been out to coffee with me or in my small group or maybe even in a new member interview, you know that I like to ask people this question. And I like it because it is particularly disorienting. I like it because it helps us to think about how we relate to Jesus in a way that we don't usually think about. So as we're going through our sermon this morning, I'd invite you to consider that question. How would you answer that question at coffee or at small group this week? Who is Jesus to you? Maybe another way to ask it is, what is your personal relationship to Jesus? And I hope that for whatever it was that brought you through the doors this morning to church, that the answer to that question is somehow important to you, whether it is because you have been a believer for a long time or whether maybe today is even the first day that you have ever thought about who Jesus might be, that that question is important for us to understand. How do we relate to this person, Jesus? I remember when I was um, 12 or 13, I was just starting to think about my faith as my own. And I I had an encounter with my youth pastor. I, I went up to him one day, and I will admit that I was a little embarrassed because I had been at church every Sunday for 12 years. I had been through the classes on discipleship and all the Bible teaching. And I went up to him and I said, you know, I'm a little embarrassed. I feel like I should know the answer to this question, but I don't. I don't understand why Jesus had to die for me. I don't understand that. Could you explain it to me? And what he said was, well, that's something everybody has to figure out for themselves. And now, if I'm being generous... Perhaps there's a nugget of truth in what he had to say and that each of us are unique individuals and because of that, we do have a wonderfully personal relationship with Jesus. But to be honest, I think my youth pastor missed the mark on that one because the reality is that there actually is only one right answer to the question, who is Jesus to you? And it's not an answer that we come to by some path of self-discovery. It's not an answer that we come to by some path of hyper-spiritualized self-realization. The answer to the question of how do we relate to Jesus starts, begins, with the question of who is Jesus. It has to deal with his identity. And the identity of who Jesus is not only shapes how we respond to him. I might go so far as to say it dictates, it demands the way that we respond to him. And that's what we're going to be considering this morning. We're going to be thinking about who is Jesus and how does that shape how we are meant to relate to him. Now, if you are, have been with us, you know that last week we finished, we left off in the middle of Acts chapter 2. We left off right in the middle of a sermon that the Apostle Peter was preaching at the day of Pentecost. And so as we get ready to dive back into that, I think it would be helpful for us to remind ourselves of the context of what's been going on. Remember, in Jerusalem at this time, there has been a lot going on in the last several months leading up to Pentecost. They saw a man who had claimed to be God 
crucified publicly. They saw him die. The people who were listening here, many of them saw him then three days later come back to life. That man, Jesus, who was God, had a real body. And a little while later, they saw that man ascend into heaven. And now, the people that Peter is talking to have witnessed the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And they are hearing the rushing of the wind. And they are seeing fire, tongues of fire. And they are hearing people speak in languages that they have never spoken before. And they are confused. And they are amazed. And they want to know what's going on. In fact, I think verse 12 of chapter 2 in Acts really sets up the answer that we're going to hear today. They say, and all, and the, the Bible says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And Peter, the apostle, stands up to answer that question. What does this mean? Last week, we studied the first part of his answer. He tells us that this pouring out of the Holy Spirit was, a t- was ushering in a new period in history. We looked at how it was a fulfillment of a prophecy that a prophet Joel made in the Old Testament. How this coming of the Holy Spirit brings in a new time when God's people will receive the Holy Spirit and when we wait for Jesus to come again in judgment. The work, though, that Peter does in this part of his sermon, the second half, is he ties that sort of cosmic event of ushering in a new period in history to the work and identity of Jesus. And he makes the claim that because Jesus is Lord and Christ, that is what has ushered in this new period in history. That is what has brought about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, as he gives this answer to the question of what is going on, and as he talks about the person of Jesus, we get one of the most compelling and clear statements about who Jesus is and how we are meant to respond to him. And so that's how we're going to spend our time today. We're going to look at the first section, verses 22 to 36 of the passage I'm about to read, and we're just going to ask the question, who is Jesus? And then in verses 37 and through 41, the people who are listening, they respond to what Peter has to say in his sermon. And in that part of the text, we're going to ask the question, who is Jesus to us? So if you have found the text, would you stand in honor of God's word while I read for us from Acts chapter 2? This is verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. You may be seated. So the first question that we aim to answer from our text this morning is, Who is Jesus? And I'll tell you that this is a very long passage with a lot in it. And so I think actually, instead of sort of starting at the beginning and working our way forward, it might help just to zoom in on the main point and then go back and see how each of the things that Peter says develops that main point. Because most of the first 14 verses or so are actually a crescendo, a building pattern until Peter gets to verse 36, where he articulates for us the main idea that he wants us to hear from his sermon. So verse 36 says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Who is Jesus? He is both Lord and Christ. That's the main point of what we're talking about today. And so as we begin, I think it might be helpful to just understand what Peter means by those two words. In fact, this verse really is a summary of almost everything we believe about Jesus. And so I want to focus on each of the sort of different clauses of it to help us see that and then go back and see how all the first 13 verses build to that point. So the first thing to recognize about this verse is that Lord and Christ are not synonymous. You might have been uh, thinking that they meant the same thing and they're closely related, but they actually have really different meanings in this verse. First, Lord uh, actually means like a king or one who has authority. I think sometimes when you see the word Lord in the Bible, it's written in all capital letters, and that means Yahweh or the name of God. That is not what's happening here. Instead, it's a more general term about one who has authority. I think it's important also to recognize that 
that Peter is calling us to remember that God made a promise to a king named David in the Old Testament that there would be a king who would sit on his throne forever and rule in justice and righteousness. And we'll take a look at how Peter developed that, develops that idea. But here in verse 36, we are meant to recognize that Jesus is greater than David and he is the Lord, the one who has authority, the rightful king who sits on the throne of David. That's what it means when Peter says that he's the Lord. He also says that he is the Christ. Now, if you have been around country singers for very often, you might have been tempted to hear Lord and Savior. That is true about who Jesus is. But here, he's actually calling us to remember something slightly different. The word Christ in the Bible is deeply associated with suffering. It's deeply associated with Jesus being a Savior. And we'll come back to that point that Peter makes later. But here, what we're supposed to see is that the word Christ means anointed one. It means chosen one. It means that Jesus is the person that God had promised to send to rescue his people. He is the anointed one. And so when you look at this phrase, I mentioned a minute ago, that I think it really does sort of contain all of the things that are true about Jesus, or most of them anyway, we can see that that Peter's making a claim. That this person, Jesus, the guy who you used to see walking around in Israel, the carpenter's son, the guy who had, whose brothers and sisters you know, that physical person is the Christ that God had promised to send, and he is also the Lord, seated at the right hand of God the Father, in the throne of David, and you killed him. That's almost everything we believe about Jesus, right there in one verse. And I'll tell you, it is a pretty powerful statement but it may actually surprise you in many ways. I'm not sure uh, what your sort of natural tendency is to think about Jesus, but I think that this verse really can help us focus in on how we're meant to think about Jesus rightly. The first thing that um, I'll, I'll pull out from it as we think about that is in verse 36, it says, let Israel know therefore for certain. I don't know if that caught you off guard. It's hard for me to believe that we can really know anything for certain in this day and age, especially in our sort of scientific era. You know, I'm a scientist, and the way that I know things is by doing experiments and observing results and then repeating those experiments and getting the same results. So the way we tend to know things or think we know things is by seeing, observing a result and then having that result be reproducible. And I think it's dangerous when we come to the Bible with the same sort of standard of how we might think something is excuse me, how we might think something is true. <clears throat> because the things that, that Peter's talking about are by their very nature one-time events. They are miracles in history. God became a man. That happened exactly once. That man then went to the cross to die. That happened exactly once. Jesus, who was killed and really dead, came back to life. That happened exactly once. And he is ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. That happened once. And so the notion that we could know something because it's reproducible or observable just doesn't fit the very nature of the kinds of things that Peter wants us to know, to have a deep confidence in, to rest our faith on. And instead, he's going to give us different kinds of evidence that are no less valid. He's going to give us personal eyewitness testimony of what happened. He's going to give us 
the proof that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. And he's going to show us a cloud of witnesses, people who hear the truth of who Jesus is and who believe it and who are transformed by it. And so if this is something that you've struggled with, how you can really have confidence in what Peter is saying, I would just invite you to consider the fact that the kinds of evidence that we have here are as good as we know anything in history, especially from this time. And if it's something that you'd love to talk about more, we would love to help you think through the kinds of evidence that we have to show the truth of what, of what Peter is saying here. So that might have caught you off guard, that we could know these things for certain. It might have also caught you off guard that Jesus was actually a man. That we're saying that this real human being was the one who God promised to send. I think nowadays it's pretty um, common for people to sort of think of Jesus as like a mythological figure or some kind of fairy tale or fable. But it's important for you to know that Christians believe that Jesus had a real body. He was a real person. And Peter's making that claim here, that this real person was the Lord. This real person was the Christ that God had promised to send. But I don't think any of those things would have been especially surprising to the people listening. They knew who Jesus was. They kind of were expecting that a Christ would come. They were looking forward to a time when a king would come and rule and take them out of oppression. I think the part of this verse that would have been surprising to them was the fact that they had been accused of killing this Lord and Christ. I think they would have been shocked by that. And it would have reframed for them the notion of what this Lord and Christ had come to do. He had come to die to save them from their sins and then rule with authority. And I think that would have reshaped them. And so I think this verse actually does, as I mentioned, kind of focus us in on what the key things are that we believe about Jesus. And so let me just summarize it for us once more, and then we'll go back and look and see how the rest of the passage sort of builds to that point in the, in the sermon. I think verse 36 tells us that this Jesus of Nazareth, a person who we really know to have been alive, was the promised one who God had sent to redeem his people. And he died. He was crucified. But he was also raised from the dead and now reigns in power and authority as the Lord. I think that is the most clear answer to the question of who is Jesus that I know how to give. Now, as I mentioned, I want to go back and unpack how the rest of these verses lead us to that point. And, and I, the way that I think um, Peter is doing this is he's kind of going through Jesus' resume, so to speak. He's reminding us of the key features of what Jesus accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection to point us to the fact that Jesus really is who he says he was. I don't know if you've ever been to a professional talk or like an award ceremony, but often the keynote speaker will be introduced by someone ahead of time. And it feels to me a little bit like what Peter's doing. He's introducing Jesus, and he's going through all of the things that give him authority to help you understand why should you even care about this Jesus. He's going to get up in a minute and tell us what he's got to say, and as as someone who's introducing him, I'm going to give a personal testimony about what he's done. You know, the best ones of those actually do have that sort of personal knowledge or personal anecdote. And so the person who does the introduction speaks on their behalf to help you understand why what they have to say matters. And I think that's a little bit of what Peter's doing here. And he's going line by line through Jesus' resume to help us see how Jesus is both Christ and Lord. And he he mentions four things. The first comes uh, in uh, verse 22. He, cho- he shows us that Jesus was both God and man. 
That's the first line on the resume that he reminds us of. The second line on the resume comes in verse 23, where we see that Jesus died. That's the second line. The third line in the resume starts in verse 24 and goes all the way through verse 31. And there we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And then finally, in verses 32 through 35, we get to the final line on Jesus' resume, which is that he was ascended. Jesus was a man, he died, he was resurrected, and he was ascended. Those are the four things that Peter is going to help us understand to show us that he is both Christ and Lord. Now, before I go sort of line by line with Peter here, I think it's important to say sometimes it's hard to know what we believe about Jesus. I mean, the Bible is really long and it has a lot of depth and beauty and nuance in it. And sometimes that can make it hard to know what is it that I really have to believe about Jesus to call myself a Christian? And I think this list of four things is pretty much the list. It's almost everything we believe to be true about Jesus. And so that way, it's really helpful for us to consider what are the things that we're aiming at as we try to understand who this person is that we put our faith in. So let me just go line by line and talk about how those things fit together, building the case for the fact that Jesus is the Christ and the Lord. The first thing that Peter says again, the first line of the resume comes in verse 22. It says... Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, Jesus was both God and man. This Jesus, who you know, who you saw, who you had lunch with, he was God. And what Peter is calling us to remember is that the works that Jesus did while he was alive proved that about him. Remember, for example, that Jesus regularly demonstrated power over creation. You might think of when he calmed the storm with a word. Or remember, for instance, that Jesus regularly demonstrated power over demons, casting them out with authority. Remember that Jesus regularly demonstrated authority over sickness, healing many people. And he even went so far as to demonstrate authority over death, bringing people back from the dead. And what the writers of the gospel show us and what Peter is calling us to remember here is that only God has that kind of authority. Only God can have authority over creation and disease and demons, and death. And because of that, what Peter is saying is that that was actually God's attestation of Jesus as who he says he was. It was a stamp of approval. It says, certified, son of man, certified, son of God, certified by God. It happened more than once in the New Testament. Another time that God attested who Jesus was was when he was baptized. You remember that Jesus had just come out of the wilderness being tempted, but without sin. And he comes to be baptized, and as he goes in the water, the heavens open up, and the Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, and God says, this is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He attests that Jesus is who he says he is. And what Peter wants us to see is that the power and authority that Jesus demonstrated while he was here on earth attests him to be both 
God and man. That is the first line of Jesus' resume, and it's really important for us. Because what happens next hinges on it. The second line of Jesus' resume that Peter reminds us about is that he was crucified dead. Verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This God-man was killed. But the thing that is really remarkable about this verse is that he went to the cross on purpose. That his death was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And friends, that is really important. It's not like Jesus was like the first Robin Hood or Bonnie and Clyde who just was a, another rebel trying to you know, stick it to the man and subvert the authority of the modern day rulers. And like every other outlaw, his time ran out, he got caught, and you know, now he's just some martyr that we remember. That is not what happened when Jesus was killed. Jesus came to earth with one thing in mind. He came in order to die so that he might pay the penalty for your sins. And so when we say that Jesus was delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, we not only mean that he came to die for all sinners, I think it's fair to say that he came to die for your sin on purpose. He had you in mind. Luke chapter 24 I think really helps us understand how this, these points fit together. It's a time after Jesus has been resurrected and he is teaching his disciples. And he tells them in verse 45 of Luke chapter 24, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now what I love about this verse in Luke chapter 24 is Jesus told his disciples, disciples to do that, and this is Peter actually doing what, what Jesus told him to do, to proclaim repentance, to proclaim the coming of the Christ in Jerusalem. But what I also love about this is that we see that Jesus was saying the Old Testament scriptures, all of the scriptures were saying that the Christ would have to die. That the Christ would have to die and suffer for your sins. And so the point that Peter is making here is that this God who became a man and then died, he is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus told us. He is the Christ. He is the promised one. That's what Peter wants us to see. This man is the one that God promised to send. And that's really important. It's really important because the next line on Jesus' resume is that he was resurrected from the dead. He went to the cross on purpose. He died, but this man, God, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, verse 24 says, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, I love this image. Verse 24 says that the pangs of death were loosed. And it was an image uh, that actually didn't resonate with me at first until I studied a little bit more because there's actually a mixed metaphor happening here. On the one hand, it tells us that Jesus no longer experiences the pain of death. That's definitely what it means. But the other thing that loosing the pangs of death means 
as it is imagining death as a pregnant woman and that the labor pains of death were loosed. What that means is that death could no more have held on to Jesus than a pregnant woman could have held on to a baby about to be born. I don't know, for those of you that have seen a baby being born or maybe uh, delivered uh, a baby, there is a moment at the end when a mother's eyes get real big and they're thinking, this baby is coming and there isn't anything anybody can do to stop it, so get ready. That's exactly what happened when Jesus was killed. He went into the grave for three days and there was nothing anybody could do to stop him from coming back from the dead because he was God, because he had lived a perfect life, because he went to the cross for your sins and he was raised from the dead. It's inevitable because death couldn't hold him even though death wanted to. Jesus was risen from the dead and in fact, Peter here gives us a second line of evidence. He quotes from the Psalms. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. It's a psalm about confidence in the presence of the Lord. Verse 20, 28, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This couldn't have been a psalm that David was saying about himself, Peter tells us in verse 29. He tells us, I tell you with confidence, David is both dead and buried, and unlike Jesus, his tomb is with us to this day. So David must have been a prophet. He must have been talking about the coming Christ. He must have been saying that this coming Christ, the one who God is promising to redeem all of his people, He is going to be raised from the dead. He is going to sit with God forever and be in his presence and have joy and confidence. And since you have witnessed Jesus being raised from the dead, he must therefore be the one that God has promised to send. That's what Peter wants us to see from this part. And as much as I would like to stop and talk about the resurrection for the rest of our time, I can't because Peter makes another point on the resume. He says not only was Jesus raised from the dead, but he was then ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And in that place, he is now pouring out the Holy Spirit onto you. It's what the book of Hebrews calls Jesus being a mediator. He is seated with God in heaven and God is handing him the Holy Spirit and Jesus is then pouring out that Holy Spirit onto us. And it is the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Lord and Christ. He is the one that God has anointed to sit at his right hand and rule forever with authority and dominion and righteousness and goodness and justice. Because the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is evidence that Jesus has ascended. And who else could have ascended but God's chosen one. And who else could have ascended except for the man who had been raised from the dead because death could not hold him? And who else could have been raised from the dead except the God who became man to go to the cross for you? Who is Jesus? Know therefore for certain 
that this Jesus, this God who became a man, he went to the cross for you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And he was crucified for your sins. But death could not hold him. And he was raised from the dead to sit at the right hand of God the Father as he was ascended into heaven. And he now pours out the Holy Spirit onto his people, fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament and ushering into history a new period while we wait for Jesus to return. That's who Jesus is. And friends, when, when the people who were listening to what Peter had to say heard it, verse 37 tells us that they were cut to the heart. They realized that this wasn't something you could hear and just walk away from. That this kind of a truth demanded a response. They say to Peter, what then shall we do? And he says to them, repent and be baptized in the name of our Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What he calls them to do is to change their allegiance. So as we shift into the last section of our our time together where we consider the question, who is Jesus to me? I think we need to consider this phrase, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That is the response that, that Peter is calling people to. And it has everything to do with the fact that Jesus is both Savior, the one who came to forgive sins, and Lord. And so I mentioned at the beginning that I thought there was only one right answer to the question, who is Jesus to me? And it has everything to do with the question of who is Jesus? If Jesus is both Savior and Lord, the promised one, then the only right answer to the question about who is Jesus to me is he is my Savior and he is my Lord. And you have to have both. I think all of us have a tendency to sort of resonate with one or the other of those. All of us have a tendency to find it easier to call Jesus Lord and follow him with obedience. We love to follow rules. We think God's rules are good for us. But it's hard for us to acknowledge that he might be our savior. Some of us, on the other hand, might love the fact that Jesus has come to save us from our sins, but we don't believe that he really has any authority over our lives. And I think all of us tend to fall on one side or the other of that. And and what I want to encourage you in is that to understand who Jesus is to you, you need to have both of those things. He needs to be your Savior, and he needs to be your Lord. And I think this phrase here, repentance, is really helpful. Repentance here signals a changing of allegiances. It signals a changing of paths, a turning of the body. It's not merely confession of sin. Confession of sin is part of repentance, but it's not all of it. There's a more active following that happens in repentance. And it it reminds me a lot, actually, of what we're doing right now in presidential primary season. You know that um, people are trying to get you to declare your allegiance with one of the presidential candidates. And the way they're doing that is they're talking about their resumes. They're telling you who they are. They're telling you what their accomplishments are. And they are trying to motivate in you 
an allegiance to them to say, this is my candidate. And now there are a number of responses to that kind of pitch. Sometimes people respond by sort of sitting on the couch with sort of a reluctant agreement that, well, I guess this person's okay. Or you might be a bumper sticker kind of uh, engager in the political process. Or if you're doing what the politicians want you to do, you're going to give money to them. Or maybe you're even going to get up and orient your life in such a way that you go knock on strangers' doors to try and tell them how valuable this person is based on what they've done and what they've accomplished. And I think the same kind of allegiance is required of us when we hear who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. But there's no such thing as a bumper sticker Christian. There's no such thing as anybody but who is all in for Christianity, who sees Jesus as their Savior and Lord and changes your allegiance from the candidate you had picked originally, which was yourself, to the candidate who now presents himself to you as the rightful ruler of all creation, the promised Messiah who God sent to save his people from their sins. That is what repentant means. It means to bring your allegiance from yourself and turn to Jesus as the one who is worthy of your allegiance. Repent. Turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You notice that verse 38 also says that if you do that, if you repent and believe, that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's not as if when Jesus comes, he merely wipes away your sin. He also replaces, replaces it with his righteousness. And when you turn to him, you will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise that God made to his people to give us new hearts, to give us new spiritual life in Christ. That's what the promise of the Holy Spirit is. We can then sing with David that we will be glad in the presence of the Lord forever when we come to trust in Jesus. Now, friends, as we close... Just the last thing that I want to do is focus in on verse 39. It says here, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You might be wondering, how could this Jesus possibly be for me? I have done so many things that you don't know about. He couldn't possibly be my Savior. And I think it's important here to see that Peter is saying that this promise is for all who are far off. He's in fact talking to people who he has accused twice of killing Jesus. And unlike us where that's sort of a figurative thing, he's saying, no, you actually were responsible for the murder of Jesus Christ, God's chosen one. I mean, how much further off could you be than that? Yet Jesus stands up through Peter and says, Come to me, repent and believe. This promise is for you. I think it's also helpful to remember who's preaching the sermon. Peter, he's answered this question before, who is Jesus? He answered it once early in the Gospels when he proclaimed him to be the Christ. But he also answered it when Jesus was being questioned by the high priests. When people came to him and said, who is this Jesus? Are you with him? Peter denied that he was 
with him. He denied knowing him. And so he stands up and he says, this promise is for those who are far off. How much further off could you be than Peter who denied Christ? How much further off could you be than the people who actually killed God's chosen Messiah? Friends, this promise is for you. Jesus came to die to pay the penalty for your sins. He was raised to new life, proving that death has no sway. He ascended into heaven where he sits, waiting and pouring out the Holy Spirit to those who believe. And what are we to do, friends? We are to repent and believe for the forgiveness of our sins. And the promise of his Holy Spirit will be given to us. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, help us, we pray. For we are rebellious and we are self-centered and we need the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this morning, we repent of our self-centeredness and turn in repentance to declare our allegiance to Jesus, to the rightful Christ who died and who was resurrected and who is now ascended and seated at the right hand of God. This morning, Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would give us faith and confidence to rest our hopes only on him. We cannot do do it apart from you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.